People always ask me what type of marketing we do at the practice to see on average 165 new patients each and every month. And I always say the same thing, reviews. And more importantly, I rank high on Google. You may have heard me talk in the past about how my practice's website and Google search ranking has been the most beneficial element to my practice's growth. Well, I've been happily working with the same marketing person for the past four years, and now you can too. Relevance Online Marketing will take you from non-existence to the top of the pack using their revolutionary approach to SEO and pay-per-click advertising. No contracts, no BS, and only the results that you can take to the bank. So if you are looking for a marketing company that gives your practice the attention and care it deserves, look no further than Relevance Online Marketing. Mention Dental Practice Heroes and get your first month free, risk-free, with absolutely no obligations. Relevance Online Marketing will take your online marketing from zero to hero. Go to RelevanceOnlineMarketing.com and set up a demo today. That's RelevanceOnlineMarketing.com and gear up for some real practice growth. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of DPH Clinical. I got Dan Brisky from Colorado Surgical Institute. What's happening, Dan? Paul, what's up, brother? I just saw that post on Facebook about your book being published. I want to say I'm very, very excited to read volume two, or I would say part two to to the book series that you have. So thanks, man. man. Really, really happy for it. Awesome. Yeah, I'm happy it's done. It was a very long process, as you've heard me talk about in previous times. It was uh, somewhat frustrating, but it's done. Yeah, Yeah, man. Thank you for that. Yeah, three day work week, which is everyone's dream, right? So I know it's it's true. It's a great thing to do. When is your three day work week happening? I feel like you're like doing a seven day work week. My three day work week will not probably come for another year and a half, probably. Yep, I have a startup opening in March, middle of March, which means I'm going to get back down to the grind um, for what I was used to doing in the past. And then uh, I will eventually get to the 3D work week. There you go. Nice, man. All right. So what are we talking about today, Brisky? Yeah. So I would like to talk about, I feel like when we talk about our podcast in the past, we haven't really dived deep into how to prevent a lot of complications. So today I want to talk about wisdom teeth and specifically how to prevent complications and how to address each of the complications as they arise. Okay. What's the most common complication that are like, what's, What's something that we should be worried about? I guess not worried about, but what is something that we're trying to prevent? What's, what is, what's a common complication you see with wisdom teeth? I say one of the most common is just appropriately knowing how to clean a site and close it correctly. So for example, you open a flap, right? And then after you remove bone, a lot of the time we forget to even rinse. It sounds so simple, right? Like a saline rinse, the entire socket to really just remove any bony spicules and tooth fragments, like things like that, and also adequately curetting and removing uh, infection. I like to use uh, Lucas Curet. I get it from ProDent. I think it's like twelve dollars. <laughs> it's pretty cheap, so everyone can definitely afford to buy one, especially if I can afford to buy one. <laughs> Little things like that, right? So if you can uh, take a wisdom tooth site, and it's always a lower. The seventeen and thirty-two when they're impacted have high rates of infection. Because with gravity, food travels down. So we never get infections on 1 and 16. We always get them with 17 and 32. So what I'll do is after the tooth is out, because we've already talked about you know how to section teeth in the past year on this podcast, the first thing I'll do is I grab a monojet. I always have two of them. And I'm going to be adequately rinsing the entire socket and flap out from debris. Another thing what I like to do too is 
to promote additional healing is I'll add PRF in all lower extraction sites. And typically we do that too on our patients that are just have number 30 or 31 taken out. Because if you're not going to graft it, now you have this source of infection that can pop up. So I'll commonly add PRF in pretty much every extraction site on the lower, but always on lower wisdom teeth. Now, if it has an apical cyst at the apex, do you have to get that out? Oh yeah, 100%. So you do need to remove any uh, granulation tissue in totality, for sure. Will the body eventually uh, take care of it? Yeah, it will, but it's going to be a little bit more of a painful process for that patient to heal. Especially with adding PRF, it's going to release a lot of growth factors and helps even prevent dry socket. Now, what about, did you mention what you're irrigating with? I like to use, honestly, you could use quite a few things. You could use Paradex, saline, um, and you can also use a hypochlorous acid, like a Microsyn or a Stella Life. Uh, which one do I pick? Usually, I'll just use saline, honestly. Um, I've been using one more frequency Microsyn, which is hypochlorous acid, uh, was what I've been using more. I started to move a little bit away from Paradex, actually. Just the cell toxicity and how it's anti-fibrillonic, uh, it tends to make me feel better, at least, <laughs> when I don't use it as much. Or a peroxide. Never. No, never peroxide. Why? It does have, it creates this like uh, foamy, foaminess inside of it. And it also is harmful to the bone too. So you're not, you shouldn't really be irrigating it with hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. The reason I ask is one time I went to irrigate with sterile saline and it started bubbling like crazy. <laughs> it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> Just kidding. That never happened. That never it's happened. It's like a Mentos and a Coke bottle. Yeah, I'm like, why is this socket <laughs> bubbling? Like it's like I'm in the sinus or something like that, and it's like a lower by custard. <laughs> yeah. It healed okay, if that really even happened. I'm just making up stories. That never happened. <laughs> one of the things with upper wisdom teeth that I mean, I've, I've had, especially like my first year out, I had a really nasty one. Breaking that tuberosity, like how do we keep from breaking that thing, and what do we do once it's broken? Because it's, I remember having one where it was a big chunk and I was like literally holding the tooth with a forceps so I could drill the distal end of the bone to get this piece off. It was like, there was no way I could pull this whole thing out. It was, that was at my associate chip. What do we do to not do that? Yeah, great question. This one happens more often than you think, right? We all could kind of picture, at least everyone that's doing some surgical extractions, a time where you elevated a wisdom tooth or even a second molar. And then you notice the tissue behind the second molar started to move with it, right? The first time that I noticed this, I didn't notice that it was from the tuberosity and I started to pull on it. And what happens when you pull on it? The tissue starts to tear, right? All the way from the second molar, all the way distally towards the soft palate. <laughs> so I remember, I think it was my first year out. Actually, I think it was my second year out actually. And I did that, but I pulled it instead and it tore a piece of tissue along with it. And it left this little terror closer to the soft palate. I remember freaking out, right? I had to like leave the leave the room for a minute and change my underwear. And then I had to figure out how, how I'm going to suture that back together, <laughs> right? But no one talks about that. No one talks about those things. Just don't do that. Yeah, just don't do it. Right? Why'd you yeah, do that? Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It happens to everyone, right? Yeah. Specialists, it happens to as well. So in rooming uh, wisdom tooth, uh, especially in older patients. Now, when the tuberosity comes off, it's usually in patients over the age of 25. It's usually not in our patients where they're under the age of 20 and you're removing a wisdom tooth. It just doesn't happen like that. It usually happens over the age of 25, and it usually happens with 
uh, multiple roots or multiple flared roots. Also on the pan over CT, you should check for a short tuberosity. And also it happens with excessive force. So I saved my token one that you noticed that it could happen on are, right, um, flared roots, like three of them, right, on all different directions. Patients 32, 35, 40 have a short tuberosity, I'd say maybe short, but I mean is about probably three millimeters. Some of the tuberosities will get way, way further back, which would be five, six, seven millimeters back, kind of get into the Hamler notch area. And then also too, once you get good at taking teeth out, uh, what happens is you start to apply way too much force quickly. So a combination of all those and getting confident with surgery, that's when you start noticing your first tuberosities that snap off because you're like, oh, I can remove this in two seconds. I'm like, ah, uh, maybe we shouldn't remove it in two seconds, <laughs> right? Can remove a wisdom tooth with a conical root shape in two seconds, right? But not one with flared roots. That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, absolutely. And I found like what is usually for me is I'm just trying to, I used to just try to wedge that thing in there and push straight ditch, distal instead of trying to push like coronally as well. Yeah. And that's what did it for me. But I used to do that quite a bit. Yeah. Until I figured that out. And then big one that I had, I just, I eventually suctioned it off and I left it up in there in the soft tissue and I'm not sure what happened to it. I never, <laughs> I never heard I mean, back from that person. So I'm guessing it worked itself out. I'm glad you just said that because I can picture so many times instructors in the past telling me, Hey, is that buckle bone moving a little bit? And you're like, yes. And they're like, they're like, take it out. Uh, but why, right? There's reasons to remove it and reasons not to remove it. Now, let's say that buckle wall or part of the bone is attached to the periosteum. So it's attached to the soft tissue, right? That's where it's going to get the, its blood supply from. So I think to just remove it, I think that that's a bit aggressive. I would tend to leave it there and see if we can get some of it to remodel and not just surgically intervene and, and remove it. But I mean, if it's just hanging there, hanging out, moving around, it's not attached to the periosteum, of course it will not have enough blood flow. And yes, that piece of bone will become necrotic and it will eventually be removed or you can remove it at that time. So for me, I only remove the bone if it is not attached to the periosteum. Good, good answer. That's good clearing that up. Now let's circle back a little bit. We're talking about like extraction complications. We mentioned how to prevent a you know dry socket and complications by cleaning out the the extraction socket and irrigating it very well. What else is there? Like, is it, what do we do when we just get a dry socket? How how do we decide? Like, okay, this is something I'm going to numb up and going to irrigate and debride versus I'm just going to give this more time. Yeah, yeah, great question. Because you have dry socket, right? And dry socket can get confused with uh, even a subperiosteal infection. So dry socket. Dry socket is usually that intense acute pain that starts around day three or four. It happens as the result of a blood clot, right? So that's why post-op instructions are so important, especially with lower teeth. It's always lower teeth or adding PRF and extractions. It's to help promote healing, right? With the, with the stabilization of the blood clot itself. That's usually a lower molar, right? It is self-limiting, so it will always take care of itself, which is just great, but except that it's extremely painful. The best thing you can do is tell your patients a very, very strict post-op instructions for the first three to four days. When we say, hey, you could rinse the site, we don't mean that you can put liquid in the mouth and actually rinse or gurgle with it. What I tell the patient is when you rinse the first three days, you put the liquid in, you turn your head to the side to the right, to the left, and then bring it forward and open your mouth and let it come out. <laughs> so it's not really a rinse. It's just you're letting the 
rinse sit on the area and on the tissue to clean the tissue, but you're not rinsing, so you are injecting it or dislodging the blood clot. That's one thing I learned a few years ago. I had an instructor that he he kind of joking in with the patient. I think the patient thought he was a wise ass for saying that. <laughs> He's like, tilt your head to the right, tilt your head to the left, and then tilt your head forward and open your mouth and just let it fly out, right? But don't rinse. <laughs> and what do you recommend they rinse with? Is salt water or are you prescribing Paradox? So we usually prescribe Paradox. Now, the reason why I don't always have every patient do the Stella Live or a Microsin rinse or even Closest. Closest is a rinse that our hygienists use. That's also hypochlorous acid is because it costs money and uh, it costs more money to get that than it will for us to prescribe Paradex. And if I prescribe something to someone and it's cheap, they're going to get it filled. But if I give someone a piece of paper that says, hey, go buy this in the pharmacy, I mean, man, 50-50 shot that they're actually going to pick that thing up and use it. So I'll typically prescribe Paradex, but for the patients that I feel like care, I you know, get that feeling that they care about their mouth or themselves and their healing, then I'll give them a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper has post-op and really good post-op instructions. And it also has an extra sheet that tells them how to heal better. Comes with take vitamin D. It has bromelain. Bromelain is in pineapple. That's a special one that even plastic surgeons use to prevent hematomas. So, and my patients that really care, I give them a little sheet and it has vitamin D on it, uh, Stella Life, bromelain in terms of the pineapple and what items to buy and how to use them. That's what I like doing. Now, if there is, what is the situation where you're going to go back in and you're going to irrigate and cure out a socket in this dry socket situation? Like, are you always letting it be? Well, a dry socket is self-limiting. So it's not going to be a typically very extremely red or puffy, right? Or cellulitic. It's going to be just dark looking and acutely painful for the patient is what this is. Because what you're talking about is more like a subparacial infection. So for the dry socket, what I'll do is we just tell the patient to rinse irrigation with saline or Paradex or Stalac, whichever they do. And then while they're in the office, I'll put gel foam or collagen plug in there. I prefer a collagen plug because collagen plug is actual collagen that will stay there for almost two weeks. Gel foam will just will resorb within about three to four hours. So I'd rather put something that has a longer shelf life on it, and it's the same cost, right? So for gel foam, honestly, I tell most people to just throw it away and just replace it with collar plug. So what you'll do is you'll cover the collar plug in dry socket paste. Another inexpensive one is called socket gel. That's one that you can even give to the patient. So I'll just cover that collar plug with socket gel, and I'll put it inside. I'm not anesthetizing the patient at all during this visit. All I'm doing is rinsing it, reassuring them, that things are going to be just okay. And then also putting collar plug with dry socket paste or a socket gel inside of it. And then make sure that they stay on their medications. The biggest incidence of a dry socket is actually not prescribing antibiotics. So when you're doing wisdom teeth, I know a lot of you and myself included, I have this inner war where I say, man, I don't want to prescribe antibiotics because they're going to get tolerance, right? And I'm contributing to the tolerance or of the antibiotics for the entire nation. And I, and I get that. But one of the biggest reasons why we get dry sockets is just because we didn't prophylactically prescribe them an antibiotic beforehand. So if you don't ever want to see one, <laughs> right, uh, you know, and with wisdom teeth, especially, and they're big wisdom teeth and they're 25 years old and you're not doing PRF, I would work, encourage you to prescribe antibiotics 
So just a seven day thing of, of amoxicillin. When do they start it? So day before for antibiotics. We also do day before for steroid. We could dexamethasone, decadron, four milligram tablets. We have them start that the day before up until four days after the procedure. That drastically decreases post-op pain and also helps with hematomas. Awesome. Good to know. So, Paul, when you when you asked about, you were hinting towards it. You're like, hey, when it turns like red, right, basically, or it starts to become angry looking, at that point, that could turn into a subparousial infection. What happens with that is it's rare. It doesn't happen very often, but it definitely can happen. So what that means, a subparousial infection is basically just a delayed type of infection. It could happen weeks after surgery, right? It could be that patient you said, hey, took their wisdom teeth out, their post-op was great. Then they came back three weeks later and then they said, doc, I'm in terrible pain. That's what a subparousial infection is starting to be turned into. What I do to treat it is, you know, you'll see a big swelling. So what I'll do immediately, I'll prescribe them amoxicillin and usually a metronidazole, so both of them, that they're going to take with together for about seven to 10 days. And if it doesn't improve after day three, so I would do a three-day follow-up on the subperiosteal infection. And at that point, that's when you re-enter the site. So if you notice they come back, all right, they were healing well, then they didn't heal well. And then it became swollen. Then you prescribe them some advanced medications like amoxicillin and metronidazole. So you go right for it, right? You go for the good drugs at that point. You don't tinker around with just amoxicillin hoping that it's going to decrease. That, you know, two, three weeks after surgery is usually a subperiosteal infection. So that's when I'm going to prescribe the good meds at that point. But if it doesn't improve after three days, right, that's when you're actually going to go back in and you're going to curette, irrigate, and add PRF, and then close it back up. And if this doesn't have resolution within, I'd say, about one more week, it could actually turn into osteonecrosis at that point. That's how like the whole spiral or cascade happens. So at that point, if they are not resolving within another week after that three days, that's when I would refer to your local oral surgeon to get it in their hands, because that's when they may need IV antibiotics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you ever had anyone with a, a big, bad subperiosteal infection like you discussed? I've only had two of them so far, um, but both of them I can remember the patient's name. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, it's, you it's, remember it's, those things, and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like I've tried everything, and I still can't get this patient to feel better. But at some point, you definitely still have to be honest with yourself and don't feel bad about referring it because these are these are people, right? And I care a lot about them. Yeah. Anything else about like closing up the flap to keep it clean? to prevent the infection, any other tips or tricks that you can think of? Best way to say it, I'd say, is if the tissue doesn't, when you when you close the tissue or just apply a little bit of pressure on it with a piece of gauze, if it stays where it is, you don't need to suture it. But if it does not, or t- if it looks like it's sloughing a little bit, then don't feel bad about adding a suture. But for the most part, I'd say 90% of teeth, I, I don't add any sutures. Are you typically doing a vertical? I will only do a vertical... For wisdom teeth, for sure. And there are some times where I'll do a vertical to visualize, let's say, like a really curved root that's really far down there and like the number 30. That's fine. But typically, an envelope flap, like just a sulcular incision and really dissecting the bone away from the tissue. So releasing, right, the periosteum from the bone itself um, is more, more than adequate to see it. So only do it if you need to see it, because the worst part is you have to go back and suture it. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) 
Risky, honest question. Have you ever had to punt a mid extraction to an oral surgeon? Oh, good question. When's the last time I did that? I did have to do that. Not during my residency, but the year after that. It was a lower wisdom tooth. I think it was 32, if I remember correctly. And I just couldn't get the freaking thing out. I remember I was sectioning it. I popped off the crown and then I got the distal root out, but I couldn't get the mesial root out because I couldn't figure out how to get the tooth out from underneath the lingual concavity. It was like very far lingual and I couldn't figure out how to dislodge it from being so lingualized. Did you watch the surgeon take it out? No, I would have been too embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. I, I had one like that, and it was it was a thirty two, and uh, it just started bleeding a lot. And I'm just like, hey, we we got to put, we got to, we got to go, we got to, we got to refer <laughs> yeah. you somewhere. The bleeding stopped, but it was. Um, I almost wish the the oral surgeon that I referred to would have like played with it for a little bit because he literally just troughed the buckle and popped it right out. And I was like, no. <laughs> and he looked at me, he's like, well, you got it really loose for me, and I'm like, you son of a bitch, like, what? yeah. <laughs> I, I was just in uh, Brazil with some oral surgeons that were down there and there I was just kind of listening in because they were telling me some stories, right, about just referrals or, you know, teeth that they couldn't take out, right, which happens to everyone, even happened to me. Uh, but they have like stock lines, the oral surgeons do, a lot of them do. They're yeah. like, yeah, you know, your doctor was amazing. Um, this is a very tough extraction, right? And then they just reach in there and pop it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But thank God that they have our backs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's good. So uh, talk about your courses coming up. Uh, you got some coming up in, I think, February. Is that right? When is the next one's coming up? We do. So our next courses are February 2nd through the 5th, and then also March 3rd through the 6th. The February course is an all next full arch course where we're going to do full arch implants with uh, next day digitally printed teeth, you know, using all ICAM and all digital aspects. We're also going to be doing lateral sinus lifts and a lot of bone block procedures live, live course wise. And our March one is going to be a simple implant class, so ones and twos. And then we're also going to be doing wisdom teeth. So typically what we see is we see a lot of super GPs that want to come out and really nail down their techniques for single implants and for wisdom teeth during the same weekend. Awesome. So for more information, check out www.coloradosurgicalinstitute.com. And those classes are almost full. Isn't that right, Brisky? We are. I know we're over 70% full. I think we got a few a few days ago. So we're really close. I think we're within 10% of, of, of filling it out already. Awesome. Well, hopefully some listeners will check that out. Thank you for your time today, man. Until next time, we'll We'll have to do our next episode. We'll, we'll just keep going with these complications. I think that sounds good. Sweet. Cool. Let's do it. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dune from Colorado Surgical Institute. I just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries. We have lateral sinus lifts. We have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. 
So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.